Good morning or good evening, everybody, wherever you may be in the world joining us for another United States Study Centre webinar. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science here at the University of Sydney and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre and, of course, the US Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. Um, our premises here stand on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, uh, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, today's webinar, uh, we're delighted to have joining us from Washington, DC, uh, two old friends of mine uh, and of the US Study Center uh, and of our uh, interlocutor today, uh, Bruce Wolpe. Uh, but I'm referring, of course, to, to Sarah Binder and, and Tom Mann uh, of the Brookings Institute. Um, and we're, we're delighted to have them joining us. Uh, a proper introduction momentarily. But what is our topic today? Um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a conversation about the future of US politics in the, in the well, what we might have once gingerly referred to as the post-Trump era, but indeed, let's, let's call that a hypothesis to be interrogated uh, perhaps o over the next uh, 58 minutes. Um, look, during the 2020 presidential election campaign, then-candidate Joe Biden famously predicted that a loss by Trump in the 2020 election would force Republicans to have, quote, an epiphany and perhaps to turn away from Trump. And indeed, I can remember saying something similar in the weeks after um, uh, Biden was, was ultimately declared the winner of the election, that by this time in, in 2021, um, there'd be far less focus on Trump as the titular head or the nominal de facto head of the Republican Party, that the fate of one-term presidents is typically to recede uh, into the shadows and allow their party to move forward. Um, President Obama said something similar in 2012 uh, when he said, I believe if we're successful in this, the 2012 election, uh, that the fever may break. And he was referring, of course, to um, the malaise, as he saw it, uh, of, of a lurch uh, in, a, in a rightward, more authoritarian uh, direction. Uh, and you remember Obama, of course, saying <clears throat> uh, more like a hot mic moment uh, about how Republicans have been feeding their base crazy uh, for years. That's, that's the fever uh, that Obama was referring to there. But has that, in fact, occurred, uh, that, that forecasting by Democratic politicians, in particular Biden and Obama, respectively? Um, can Biden's track record for bipartisanship change the course of polarization that has been a defining characteristic, if you will, of US politics in, in recent decades. And, and Biden is one of the most experienced political operators to become president in US history. Uh, is there any chance uh, that he can reverse this trend of, of deeper and deeper polarization and, and bring about an era of bipartisanship? And indeed, when we wrote this copy ahead of today's webinar, that seems the, the more immediate challenge is perhaps uniting his own party around, around some of his big legislative proposals, let alone reaching across the aisle. And of course, for a US Study Center based in Sydney, Australia, uh, the questions that we also want to explore, what are the implications for Australia uh, and Australia's national interests um, if that internal division inside the United States uh, worsens? Um, to join us uh, today um, in, in, in exploring these questions, um, um, we're going to be led uh, by Bruce Wolpe, who I'll hand over to in just a moment. Bruce, of course, uh, a non-resident senior fellow with us here at the US Study Center uh, and one of the hardest working political analysts in Australia. You can't miss Bruce across multiple platforms uh, in, in, in Australian media. Um, Bruce, of course, though, um, knows what he's talking about, and that's why he's with us here at the US Study Center, of course, uh, having worked um, Politics uniquely, perhaps, uh, worked in politics at high levels in both Australia and the United States. Uh, uh, Bruce, of course, uh, working for Democrats um, uh, in Congress during the Obama presidency and here in Australia, uh, working to support um, Prime Minister Julia Gillard, uh, where he served as her um, chief of staff at, at one time. And uh, Bruce, enormously valuable uh, member of the US Study Center community. Uh, he is also, I should say, um, uh, an author of a University of Michigan press book that's uh, about to get a second edition 
um, describing the inner workings of, of the U.S. committee system. So uh, no mere talking head, our Bruce Volpe, uh, I, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, an expert uh, with, a, with, a, with a serious university press book uh, behind him that we'll be talking about in a future webinar. Um, Bruce, of course, brings an extensive network of friends and connections um, um, in Washington, D.C., and, uh, and they overlap with mine from time to time. And today is, is, is one of those happy occurrences. Um, uh, Bruce's uh, secured the talents of Sarah Binder and Tom Mann, both through at the Brookings Institute. So Sarah, uh, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, professor of political science at GW George Washington University, uh, where she specializes in Congress and legislative politics. Her res current research explores the historical and contemporary relationship between Congress and the Fed. And she is the co-author with Mark Spindle of The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve, a Princeton University press book from 2017. And um, for the deep US politics nerds on the call, um, you may be aware that Sarah is an associate editor of the must-read uh, Monkey Cage blog that is now um, part of the Washington Post family. Um, a great uh, case study of, of the academy, political science, uh, finding a voice, uh, uh, talking about issues of the day and, and finding that nexus between uh, scholarship and, and a more a close to real-time relevance and insight. Uh, Tom Mann, um, um, a frequent visitor to Australia over the years, and of course, we'll have to get that uh, renewed when, when COVID uh, permits, but Tom is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute and resident scholar uh, at the Institute for Governmental Studies at, at UC Berkeley. Uh, Tom held the W. Averill Harriman Chair at Brookings between 1991 and 2014 and, and was the director of the Government Studies Program at Brookings between 1987 and 1999. And before that, Tom um, had a gig just down the street on New Hampshire Avenue as executive director, executive director of the APSA, the American Political Science Association. Um, um, great to have Sarah and Tom joining us. Bruce, um, thank you for organizing today's webinar. Floor is yours, thank you. Thank you so much, Simon. Uh, Sarah, Tom, it's just wonderful to have you. Tom, we can't wait till you're back in the country once again and, and informing and educating us. And Sarah, we want to show you the whole country top to bottom, okay? So just <laughs> as soon as the borders open, you just come on out here and we'll take care. Um, in discussing with Tom and Sarah what we want to do today, the future of American politics, uh, there's, a, there's a common theme to the discussion and it is, is America's democracy working? Um, how serious are the threats to it? What's at stake? What can happen in the short term to ease uh, the corrosive effects uh, and restore some confidence in America's democracy that we see? So we will get there, but we wanna go through some issues and political developments. And we I wanna start with the semi-breaking news on the debt limit, which sort of encapsulates a lot of the, issue, the underlying fundamental issues. There seems to be an agreement for a short-term debt extension, but it was moving up to the up to the edge, Sarah, of a, of a fiscal cliff, and it, a it looked like it couldn't be solved, uh, and and there was discussions to solve it or break it that maybe the filibuster would be visited in in this in the Senate and it would be used as a wedge to break open the filibuster, and but Sarah, what, the sense that we talked about was that there were some Republicans who were ready to go over the cliff. And I really wanted to get your um, assessment of the state of play on the debt limit and some of the drivers, particularly among Republicans for it. And Tom, some of the politics that we saw underway as, underway as we speak in trying to the short-term re uh, resolution, but there's still more to do in December if it goes through. Sarah. Sure, thanks, thanks Bruce and thanks Simon uh, for including me. Um, so the Senate and Congress and the government uh, itself is caught uh, in this, uh, a problem of their own making, which is the US has a limit on how much debt uh, can be issued at any one time. They've hit the debt limit. Uh, Treasury Department is looking for uh, coins under the couch cushions to kind of stretch out how long they can pay interest on the debt. Um, send out checks for social security recipients, uh, military, pay employees, federal employees. So everything hinges on this. Uh, U.S. has never defaulted. They've never actually gone over that cliff. And by most estimates, 
a short-term default and a long-term default could both be uh, cataclysmic for the U.S. as well as the global economy. So the stakes are huge here. Uh, but what we saw today or what seems to be playing out today is really the Senate, Senate Democrats and Republicans are doing probably what they do best in this area of very polarized uh, polarized politics in a Senate that has some very, what I think of as medieval rules that require supermajorities, they basically kicked the can. Uh, they looked at the abyss. In this case, the Republicans, I seem to realize that Democrats weren't giving in. I think there was probably a little worry about being blamed because Democratic messaging has been a little more focused to say the problem here is Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, and he needs to get out of the way, Joe Biden, the president said. I think the Republicans got a little worried about uh, Joe Manchin, the 50th Democratic senator, and whether he might be willing, as Tom will tell us about, maybe to bend the supermajority rules to let the debt limit go through. So I think McConnell got a little nervous offered a couple of things to Democrats. They rejected one of them to use a special budget procedure. They don't want to do that. Um, but Democrats did give in to kick the can, at least until December. So but in December, there, we, yeah, yeah we'll be right there, back. Was there sentiment in the Republican Party to be okay for, for the U.S.? Okay, it's going to default. And guess who's going to wear it? Biden and the Democrats and there'll be a cataclysm and, and they will get hit. Was that a, a theme inside the Republican Party that you were picking up? So I think many people have their suspicions that defaulting, perhaps there was some more enthusiasm on the Republican side than meets the eye. So I think that sort of in the realm of speculation, we've had had cliffs that the U.S. has gone over before. They haven't been quite as core to the U.S. dollar and treasuries and like the, the symbol of the American and the world global financial system. Uh, the fact that McConnell blinked today about, let's say, a week or two, maybe a couple more before really Treasury really ran out of cash, uh, sort of suggests to me he's trying to send a message to his colleagues. Actually, we really can't uh, default on, on go over the cliff on this one. Okay. Tom, but, yeah. yeah. Tom, what are you thinking? Well, well I think uh, McConnell had a plan. Um, the plan was not just to cause chaos um, that would uh, come back to haunt Biden and the Democrats, but it was really, I think, to, to kill the, uh, the reconciliation Build Back Better package. Uh, it was to force Democrats to go through uh, the arduous uh, process of amending their old budget resolutions for the year to allow for a debt ceiling action and uh, and then uh, live through the chaos of a you know potential voterama and and in the end not be able to get it done um, uh, but Democrats sort of dug in their feet. They just said, no, we're not doing it. It's unrealistic. And they said, hey, what are you doing? You said Democrats have to take full responsibility, even though that wasn't the case in past debt ceiling crises. Um, but then you say, but we're going to filibuster you, so you can't do it <laughs> with, with your barest of, uh, of majority parties. So I think he had the weak side of the, uh, the argument and, uh, and he really got scared. There, there are a fair number of Democrats who believed he folded and it's reinforced for them the view that, that they really have to play more hardball with him because uh, uh, Mitch McConnell likes to win and likes to be in the majority and nothing else really matters to him. Uh, and 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 so that's what it's going to be. They haven't settled with how it's going to be dealt with in, on December 3rd, but Build Back Better goes forward. And if it's going to pass, it will pass before we return to the debt ceiling. Yeah, I think that's right. Past debt, I was in, uh, working in, on the Hill in the last big debt crisis in 2011. And uh, then at least it was a fight about how much taxing, how much spending, if we're going to extend the debt limit. 
this was not about that at all. This was just about, I want to stop you cold, you know, and yeah, it was just devoid of any higher policy argument. It was just a McConnell straight- McConnell no ask uh, what, whatsoever. And I, I just to mention one other thing that you had, had referred to, I, I think suddenly McConnell felt the uncertainty about, about the carve out of the filibuster. Uh, right that maybe Manchin and Cinema would go along because Manchin's words this morning were, um, you know, he said two things we have to have. And the one, the one that came first was the full faith and credit of the United States and its currency. That can't be uh, left uh, uh, to hurt us. And second, you know, I have a, a long-standing position on the filibuster, and there's no reason to talk about that. That introduced just enough uh, flexibility, I think, uh, uncertainty that McConnell got uh, uh, got cold feet and said it was time for Plan B. We'll come back to this, but um, let's step back for a moment, because um, to just sort of paint the landscape. I mean, Biden's been president for 250 days, and he had a really strong start. He had good appointees. Uh, people known for their excellence and experience and uh, as diverse a cabinet as, as ever been assembled. He had the American Rescue Plan. It passed in like the 50th day. He had COVID management, the vaccines, great rollout early in the term. Po the programs have been popular with most Americans, bipartisan deal on infrastructure. But then he hit several walls, Afghanistan, Delta, the border, the uneven economy, and he's on the brink of his legislative agenda. It's not there yet, but the, it's the whole ball game, as far as I can see. So I'd like to ask both of you to share your thoughts on where Biden is and what his prospects are in general terms right now. And Sarah, why don't we, why don't we start with you, please? Um, sure. So I think just to step back a moment, we are in a period of unified in this case, Democratic Party control. And what we know historically over the, say, post-war period is unified party control does not last very long. Uh, on average, maybe three, four years, but in reality over the last couple of decades, just two years before the President's party tends to lose control of the House uh, in the midterms. And everybody knows time is short. and It has increased pressure on the Democrats to move something and move something big and to use whatever procedures they can to do it without having to encounter um, a Republican filibuster in the Senate. And I think the, the problems as you point out for the Biden White House, are, I would put them as twofold. First, I do think really Delta is what dealt the biggest blow to the energy and uh, the trajectory on which the Biden was, was moving. And I think Afghanistan kind of piled on, but that sort of receded, I think, quite a bit from the news. But Delta kicked off more and uh, certainly more shutdowns, more uh, concerns about vaccinations, closures, masking, the whole thing. And so everybody looking forward to the economy improving uh, were sorely disappointed. Right, everybody from me and my kids to to everybody here to hear on the news. So um, that and that has now maybe we would have had these inflation problems anyway, but the the emergence and sort of economic recovery took a hit, and that has a obviously bearing on how people think about the president, especially because that's what Biden ran on, which is to not just restore sanity in the White House, but to take seriously a pandemic and, and improve and um, figure out how to marshal all ends of uh, the, the economy back, back to work. So I think that was uh, problematic for sure. The other related issue, and again, I wouldn't see this as fault of uh, Biden, but the administration, the first thing they really had to do was really this backwards looking COVID plan, which was to make up for what hadn't been, hadn't been addressed. And it had to be done, I think, and in part, much of it was pushed onto Biden and the Democrats uh, because of a stalemate at the end of the last Congress. But, you know, that's not what you campaign really on and Delta hits and suddenly, right, the agenda is, is, is upset, right? They're no longer in control of the agenda and few presidents are, uh, but Biden is really struggling and add on top these really, really slim majorities. And we now have stories about Democrats in disarray and this, the moderate wing and the progressive wing 
I think we forget there really is no moderate wing. <laughs> this is a Democratic Party that has moved to the left. And it looks like a wing because it's such slim majorities. It just takes one or two or a handful. And um, it's going to take some time. But I think, as uh, Tom was saying, uh, kind of rescuing reconciliation and the package here um, from the designs of the Republicans over the debt will might help the focus their energies on getting to the finish line. Right. Tom, what's your take here? Yeah, I, I think Sarah's spot on. I mean, first of all, the majorities are so narrow. And remember, Democrats really didn't expect to win those, uh, you know, special elections in Georgia and didn't expect to have a majority. And suddenly they had a unified government, but they had many fewer Democrats on the House than they anticipated. So it, it's, it's very difficult to get, to get anything done under those circumstances, you know, especially when you're facing a, uh, a party that finds itself easier to unify when they're in the opposition, uh, in the minority. And, and Mitch was uh, quicker in announcing that his entire agenda was to kill the Biden agenda. Uh, he waited some months before he he did that to Barack Obama when he was uh, elected uh, elected president. Uh, and then COVID overwhelms the other considerations. The fact is the economy is doing reasonably well. The public is happy to be out of Afghanistan, uh, but ten days of saturation coverage of what a what a moral failure and a cowardice and a disaster it was coming from both parties, you know, certainly helped to move his approval ratings uh, uh, down. Uh, I mean, I think Biden knew when he said that he could bring, build bipartisan agreement in the Senate and the Congress, he knew that was silly, but he, like Obama, both believed it was good electioneering to say you're open to do that. But now he's, he even let it go on a little longer, but I think it's gonna be much more, much more hardball. As Sarah said, the Democrats are unified. They have two senators, Cinema, uh, who's Cinema. Uh, she's a flake. <laughs> she's gone from being a, a hard green lefty to being uh, enchanted with capitalism and the CEOs that manage it and doesn't talk to anybody about anything, including in her own state. Uh, Manchin, of course, is being Manchin and he hasn't yet admitted to himself that we have a different reality in American politics and a different Congress. There are no swing senators that you can deal with on matters like this and that Ironically, the better chance of building any kind of cross-party agreement is by getting rid of the filibuster, not yeah. by retaining it. Yeah, I, I, with uh, Simon Jackman's ears, uh, you can say um, that you can't, it's hard to say cinema is a flake because Flake was a senator from Arizona too. And so, <laughs> so he's there. Um, I, I have kind of two observations on the strategic decisions. <laughs> Go big, go early, go fast. The programs, the, the program elements, what he wants to accomplish, uh, getting out of Afghanistan. Is a, Biden was right, but the execution has been disappointing and that you had so many high-powered, experienced, capable people. That's the surprise that, you know, France could be so mishandled, that the Kabul could be so messy, that, uh, the, that Delta has not, they haven't cracked the Delta nut, as you said, Sarah. And I think that's all hurting because people are not seeing results kind of fast enough. And on your and what you were saying, Tom, when Obama was president, on any vote we took to the House floor, we could lose 39 Democrats and still win. Yeah. Today, exactly. three, three, three. <laughs> and you know, and and uh, and and you're right, uh, Sarah, as well. When Biden, he has unified the party. I love in the press last week when he said, "I have unified the party. I have 99 percent of the party behind me. I have two that I need to get." And that's right. So, yeah. I, the only thing I just to add is I, I think it's putting a little too much uh, blame and emphasis on Biden. Uh, I actually think 
it was going to be messy in Afghanistan uh, once you decided to to honor the agreement that Trump signed that protected American military still in the country. And if he had not done that, uh, we would have had American service deaths and we would have had Biden having to increase the military there. And Kabul, that was a disaster. No one anticipated it falling so quickly. And to me, the miracle is airlifting 120,000 people out in 10 days. I think that was just a stunning achievement. So I, I don't worry so much about, about him and the quality of his, uh, his staff. Okay. Um, got understood. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask uh, Sarah, uh, um, with, to you first, do, do the Democrats understand that if Biden fails, they fail? And that they are dead in the midterms if uh, this program isn't pulled together. And is that driving them? And then, Tom, a little bit more on how the Republicans are positioned right now would be good. Well, certainly Democratic Party leaders in Congress understand that. And that has really been the message from Speaker Pelosi over the last several weeks, whenever we hear snippets of what's going on uh, in these Democratic uh, House Democratic Caucus meetings. She's really laid it on the line in, in almost increasingly desperate terms. Like at one point she said the reconciliation, the Build Back Better was going to be the sort of the pinnacle of her of her career. Um, I think she's tried to make plain to the progressives that that they need to bring that number down uh, and that going home empty handed to voters is just not an option. Now, it, it may be that when we look at the election in hindsight that we say, well, it was all about the economy anyway, but we also know tend, that the president's approval rating tends to matter because these are these midterms are referendum on the performance of the president's party uh, to the extent understanding there aren't very many swing voters left to, <laughs> to swing things. Um, and the president's how, his, how he's rated will depend on what he, what he accomplishes and what they have to campaign on. Um, it, it, they can't blame things on Republicans, even if they believe Republicans to be the cause uh, because of uh, their use of obstruction, right? All eyes are on the Democrats uh, next year. Uh, it's really, they have no option but uh, to bring something home to voters. But ironically, the, there remain a fair number of Democrats from, from swing districts, there aren't many, uh, who really believe the reason they got elected is because they had this platform and they said this and they got this distance. I mean, Kirsten Sinema believes that in a Senate race, that it was, it was all her positioning that made the difference. It gives no credit to the extraordinary effort of just one group that registered and turned out 200,000 new votes in the state of Arizona. This is, I mean, it's only at the margin that, and it's a very slender margin that you can make a difference. Usually you can hurt yourself by doing something really dumb and it's not a particular vote. I mean, most Americans, even those who are going to vote, don't really have much of a clue of what their individual member is up to. But they take a guess at what she or he is doing based on their party. Yeah. Um, let's uh, turn to the Republicans. Tom, you've written so much on the Republicans with uh, Norm Ornstein, E.J. Dion, over many years. And, uh, and the party is still not, it's not post-Trump at all. I mean, it's still in his grip. And it seems since this Gingrich days, you know, going back to the time when Gingrich became speaker in the early 19, late, early 1990s, that the party has become more and more extreme. Can you just talk about how you see the Republican Party today? Uh, it's terrifying. Uh, the Republican Party was scary pre-Trump. Uh, the changes had begun to occur. There was a different coalitional base to the party that came to rely very much on, on social conservatives and race and, and push the effort that Richard Nixon uh, originally made to try to, to, try to uh, actually use the, uh, the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts and the progress of the civil rights movement 
as a way of uh, playing on the, the, uh, the really loss of opportunity and jobs and dignity of so many people uh, around the country who had traditionally voted uh, Democratic. So they, they began to change, but they did it in a way, starting actually in, in, in 1980 with Ronald Reagan, government's the problem. And so it was, it was against government and, and Grover Norquist, who, who insisted that all Republican candidates uh, say they will never ever cast a vote to, uh, uh, to increase taxes. And, and new added to that uh, by all means, but the context was there, the coalition was changing, the, the party came to embrace the pro-life, uh, anti-choice, whatever term you like best, uh, of the abortion issue and, and, uh, and really mobilize the energy and activity of, uh, uh, of uh, some base voters. There were key organizations uh, that played an important role in this. And it was a lot of very wealthy uh, uh, conservatives got involved in that effort and began, began building a party. Newt took it and decided the best strategy for the Republicans was, was to reduce the trust that Americans had in government and the people who, who populated and the programs that had passed. And that really opened up uh, this tension uh, between the parties in a way that went well beyond just policy differences. And frankly, uh, we wrote, Norm and I, as you know, wrote a book back in, in 2012 and, and said the Republican Party had become the most extreme, not just on individual policies, but on, on political process and democracy of any, of any Democratic Party in the industrial uh, world. And it just got worse and worse. They, climate change, that's just one person's opinion. And, and they denigrated truth and facts and they didn't believe in compromise and, and they were stirring a base that over time connected with, you know, with all kinds of other features and developments in our politics. So I frankly think it's closer to a cult, uh, not a tribe, tribes are small, but a real, cult now and and there are many people who honestly believe the only way they can have a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives and a sense of dignity and worthy of respect is finding a, a leader and being loyal to him and and so this has basically made them eunuchs as a legislative body uh, checking and balancing a president of their own party. And, and frankly, it's scary. I, uh, I think we're close to the, the abyss. Uh, I really think the, uh, the continued lying about the 2020 election, the, the attempted self-coup, uh, the efforts underway with social media, building on white supremacist uh, groups, nativists, and so on. It's all real, and people are more open to violence. I mean, we're talking seriously about violence and wondering whether, gee, maybe we'll just have to get out of this country and fight our way out. Uh, it, now, mind you, this can be hyperbole, but but I seem to remember other times in history when seemingly ordinary middle-class, working-class people who had never done a thing in politics before got really excited about the possibilities of someone speaking up for our country and, and what it means. And uh, it's not a happy history uh, to repeat here in the US. Um, it's quite uh, sobering, but, and uh, so Sarah, turning to you, do you see strands inside the Republican Party? You know, in the old days, Republicans, Democrats like to work with each other. And uh, so given this 
overlay of um, what is occurring there underneath. Uh, are there other forces that could over time bring the Republican Party back into something that uh, that is a little more workable as far as more bipartisanship, more uh, agreement on a, a common direction for the country? Uh, I'm highly skeptical. So long as Trump is in position as the leader of Republicans, that even to the extent we know there are some Republicans who disagree with him, especially elected Republicans in Congress who may disagree with him, they're too seemingly terrified to speak up about it. And I, I think sometimes we lose sight, even in Washington, about what exactly that January 6th insurrection really did to relationships in Congress, right? Uh, we're used to the two parties not kind of trusting each other on policy, but it's much deeper than the distrust runs really from Democrats distrusting Republicans to keep everybody safe. I mean, there's just like this, um, I, I think, traumatic uh, outcome from that insurrection. And it has really rendered um, uh, those relations, the bipartisan relationships that were there on local issues, on parochial issues that were working below the surface, even those have been dis disrupted and many of them. And so I, I'm skeptical so long as Trump is in the picture. Uh, I don't, I think he absorbs and soaks up all the oxygen and he revs up this cultural grievance, right? Not even so much the left right lines, but this sort of cultural social grievance and it's connected to him uh, as his personal loyalty. It, it really leaves no room, I don't think, uh, for those types of working relationships. Now, Having said that, uh, we often overestimate deadlock in Congress, um, and many political science are trying to kind of show the ways in which there is more bipartisan things that, that do happen. And there's, there's some truth to that, but at the end of the day, you and I can all point to the big issues of the day that are just stuck on the agenda. Right. And so, yes, opioids have been addressed to a large degree. Uh, there's a land conservation, uh, landmark land conservation bill in the last Congress. Um, there are these efforts, these bipartisan efforts that do emerge. But when I look at the big issues, uh, the future of entitlements, climate change, immigration, they just pile up and these issues don't go away. And they don't go away because there doesn't seem to be any willingness to meet the other side, right? I don't expect them to meet in the middle, right? Because there is no middle in American politics, but we do need them to come to the table and to know what the other side wants. So you can have some sort of like, not zero sum, but positive sum, right? You get your preferred outcome, I get mine, and, and suddenly we do something bigger. But those deals aren't happening. They're, they're really not happening. Can we, can we drill down to a couple of the drivers of that, you know, that bring us to this place, and which is the long-term threats to America's democracy, and I think the two that really top most in my mind, obstacles to the right to vote and the corrosion of faith in the integrity of elections. And uh, just any thoughts on, on those which are still ever present? Yeah, Republican states, Georgia and Arizona, who are changing their election laws to become more restrictive, even though the Republicans went to every length in that state to certify and properly did an election. That's not good enough. We got to do more. Bruce, it's really stunning what's uh, happened. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest developments in our politics is that we now have minority rule. That is, we have a bias in the structure of the system combined with the nature of the party system now. So geography intersects uh, with, uh, with general political predispositions um, the Senate is an embarrassment in the world of uh, democratic elect uh, legislatures, uh, two per state. I mean, and it's hardwired in the Constitution. Can't pass it with the normal constitutional amendment. Um, now, Democrats used to do pretty well in some lightly populated states. There's still a few like that remaining, like Vermont, but. But the, the bias now in the rural areas and in particular in the industrial states uh, together with that really favors the, the Republican party. Estimates are that, that uh, you know, in a less than 20 years, you could have 70% of the population living in 15 states. 
um, uh, earning them 30 out of 100 senators. And the, the 30, <laughs> you know, the 30% of the rest of the population has 70 senators. I mean, the Senate in the future faced the crisis of uh, legitimacy. And, and, uh, and then that contributes to the electoral college problems. You know, we, Republicans don't win majorities or uh, pluralities uh, easily in presidential elections or in House and Senate elections. It's, it's because Democrats cluster in urban areas and, and states and waste uh, waste votes and seats in, uh, in both the Senate and the House and the uh, Electoral College uh, adds to it. And then the, the Supreme Court, which is, which is now a 6-3 majority appointed by Republican presidents. Uh, they didn't have that many Republican presidents. Trump got three. Uh, thanks uh, to Mitch McConnell, he plays hardball, he plays to win, to appoint judges and get them confirmed. Um, and and it's, um, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge problem because while now the, the sort of violence and unhappiness is on the right, uh, you could imagine it developing on the left as as democracy is really diminished, if not crushed, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, uh, you could see uh, not just are some votes suppressed, but votes are ignored, overturned uh, by state legislatures. We have funny laws and constitutional provisions that make it very vulnerable. And a, a, Republicans will almost certainly again control another majority of, of states, which gives it the ability to appoint its own president, whatever uh, has happened, if it falls to them. So we are in real trouble, Bruce. Uh, I just think it's, it's a mistake. Yes, congrats to all those people, the judges, the officials, the bureaucrats, the activists who, who kept the election from being stolen in 2020, but Trump thinks that was just a dress rehearsal. And now the activities going on in the state, uh, as you referred to, passing laws that, that really make sure a minority elects this next set of leaders. And, and the only way to stop it is, is by is by dumping the filibuster, or at least reforming it to exclude uh, voting rights and uh, and the like, and that we may come to that. I still think there's a chance in September when the reconciliation bill is uh, presumably resolved that we'll we'll come to that, and the pressure on Mansion and uh, and Cinema will be enormous to uh, to do this. And frankly, I think it necessary though far from sufficient step for saving our democracy. Uh, Sarah, one more question to you on this, then Simon, over to you first questions from our friends who were listening. And that is, um, uh, so, so don't we really have to, isn't voting, voting rights then is really the, there are these structural issues baked into the constitution, impossible to change in the near future. So, so voting rights and, and is the ultimate check here correct? And, and is what's the, my view is next year, even on the midterms, it's almost going to be a holy march to the polls by people to vote and that they will stand in line for seven hours and no one can give them food and water. And it will be a spiritual journey because they know, because people understand what's at stake. Well, so there, there, there are two areas, I think, of concern to folks who study elections and, and the fairness of elections. Uh, first, as you said, is the Voting Rights Act. 
and the efforts in states to really pair them, pair them back, to put it to put it mildly. The second is the the law under which uh, electoral college votes are counted for the president. Uh, and there's a mess of a law called the Electoral Count Act. And there are many, many suggestions and reforms for how to close off the ambiguities that were not exploited successfully uh, in 2020, but could be exploited successfully. Um, but none of those are going anywhere uh, because it re- demands action at the federal level and Republicans are not gonna participate uh, in, in those reforms as best anybody can tell. Um, possibly something on the Electoral Count Act, if there's been, if they can be convinced that there's something in it for them, but I, I'm somewhat skeptical. So everything then is back to turnout, back to your original question about whether or not for from the Democrats perspective, enough people will will turn out in these places where uh, voters of color have lost uh, lost much of their um, much of their voting rights. I, I think the question in part is, uh, can Democrats um, motivate uh, their partisans to turn out if there's no Trump on uh, and no Trump policies on the ballot? Uh, it worked quite well in 2018 for generating uh, a lot of women candidates, a lot of very well-funded candidates uh, to take back control of the House. Uh, and it worked in 2020, clearly in those Senate races, particularly in Georgia uh, with Stacey Abrams uh, in, in particular. Um, I, I think that's kind of in a world where there's, as we talked about, so few swing voters, m- much of everything's about turnout. Um, and the question is, are there those are there hidden Democratic voters uh, on the left uh, that Trump was able to you know, generate his hidden hidden conservative voters on the right? Yeah. Um, I think we don't really know yet. And will the Trump voters turn out with without Trump on the ballot, too? That's an interesting thing. Anyway, Simon, some questions from all of our friends. There's a rookie error. Um, from- <laughs> putting myself on mute on webinar number 700 but anyway um hey it's been a fabulous conversation let me just um say that and and the depth of the insight tom and sarah have been providing over these last um uh, three quarters of an hour just thank you so much in advance um let me move to some um questions that have come uh, up you know ahead of time uh, but also in real time look <laughs> Let's knock this one um, out first because it's something we get a lot in Australian media and 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 these are questions about Biden himself. And I just, maybe briefly, we can just get this out of the way. And that is, um, is he... Is he enfeebled, frankly, as as um, as some media reports, uh, point out, um, you know, uh, the White House has got very tight control over messaging and comms and and whatnot. And and it seems to be a staple, particularly in media, predisposed not to be sympathetic uh, to the Democratic side, to really go at that as a as a as a characteristic. Um, I, I'm wondering your, your assessment of that, the reality of it, and 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 the politics of it. Uh, Sarah, perhaps you first. Sorry, Tom. No. Um, I'll be curious what, what Tom says. I, I, I would put it this way is, well, every comparison to the Trump White House is interesting, but in comparison to the Trump White House, there really have been, I would almost say no leaks about what is going on in the White House. And it really does appear to be a well-oiled yeah. uh, machine as it were. And I don't think that's because there's such a tight lip we don't hear. I do think it, given the traumas in the world, I do think it is a pretty well-functioning White House, despite the missteps uh, and problems that uh, Bruce started us off with. So I, I, I think it's not, it, I'm not worried about Biden's mental health. I, so long as decisions are being made, he's up on the hill, he's speaking, he's talking, and he's traveling, and he's speaking sense. Um, it's not really something that keeps other things keep me up at night, and that's not it. <laughs> oh. An emphatic no. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Um, look, I want to come back um, to 
Joe <laughs> to Manchin. Um, um, and I want to probe both of you on um, Australians, not many Australians might know what the Hyde Amendment is. And could you explain to us what the Hyde Amendment is, number one? Number two, um, what role might it play in, is that a bridge too far for um, the progressive uh, wing, which is a wing um, of the of the Democratic uh, caucus, if if that is the um, something that that Manchin is insisting on. So so again, perhaps Sarah, um, for an Australian audience, explain to us what the Hyde Amendment is and and um, and and why Joe Manchin is uh, wants it. Um, sure. So 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 at its most basic, right, the Hyde Amendment, it's built, it's been written into laws and kept there since the 1970s, barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, uh, except uh, to save the life of the woman, uh, or uh, in the cases of incest, a pregnancy that arises from incest or, or, or rape. And it has been embedded in laws and it has stayed there and it affects a number of federal, federal programs. And it doesn't affect state spending, but it does affect um, federal programs. So the issuance come back on the, the, in the sort of news stream of late is that the House Democrats in passing the spending bills that they have, uh, at least through committee, I'm not sure how many are through the floor, um, have taken out the bar, the Hyde Amendment from the pivotal, what we call the labor uh, health, the, the, the spending bill that deals with health, uh, health programs. Um, I think there's skepticism that Democrats in the House will succeed in keeping it out because uh, it does have to contend, obviously, with the Senate and spending bills need supermajority votes. So um, I think that's part of what uh, uh, Manchin was, Senator Manchin was signaling this week when he had said something about favoring the Hyde, Hyde Amendment. I think it's just those spending bills also kick the can until December. They'll need to, they'll need to address that at some point. Um, I'm a little skeptical that the House Democrats uh, will succeed uh, in, in that pursuit of stripping it out of, uh, stripping it out of the law. Simon, that was the issue generally of funding for abortions. That was the last piece of nailing down the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare. And, and it took uh, elaborate negotiations to figure out ways of setting up sort of separate accounts and funds. And in the end, uh, it helped to uh, uh, that there was a little more margin uh, for acting, but but basically it's uh, that's something they'll probably have to give up. Frankly, um, with the Supreme Court teeing up a major case mm. uh, deciding Roe versus Wade, and likely uh, we'll see. We don't know what they'll do. I know what John Roberts would do if he still could control a 5-4 yeah, right. majority, but uh, I, don't, I don't know now. But frankly, that, that will tend to overwhelm that issue. And, and you'll see where in states where abortions are legal, you know, there'll be 15 to 20 of those states. They already have some public funds going for abortions and they will be there, but the disaster will be for poor women in the remaining 30 plus states. Um, let's um, take a, a question from, from the audience and, and uh, Timothy Lawler, I think gets us back to some of one of the framing questions that I, 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 I kicked us off with. And that is bottom line, what does it take for the Republican Party to do what Obama said it would do uh, after two losses? And, um, and again, um, what Biden said he thought it would do after he defeated Trump, what would it take for the, for the Republican Party to sort of kick clear of, you know, sort of we call it Trump, but as the discussion indicated earlier, I think Trump might be as much symptom or standard bearer of a of sort of a trajectory 
that's perhaps been underway. What what would it finally take in in both you know in your assessment? Um, each of you, perhaps again, the order we've been running, Sarah. Perhaps you first. Um. Sure. So when we look sort of historically at like how do you generate real change in the in the American political system, it's typically some shock, right? Whether it's war, most often, uh, other types of crises, immigration. But what we're seeing is the type of crises we encounter don't seem to be shaking loose the system. And so as sort of a second best, I've always said, well, shy of world war, hopefully, um, unified party control, some electoral movement that generates uh, more power for one party, for better, for worse than, than the other party. Um, but until we're, as we can see from this round of unified party control with slim majorities, you're really not um, getting the bang for the boost, uh, which is for my book, the goal is to really kind of solve problems. And we're not generating those types of electoral currents that are really going to shake up the system yet. Now, nothing is forever in American politics, um, but it's sometimes really hard to move the ship of state. (laughs) It's really hard to move the direction. Um, Trump is something that seems to be making, made some changes here, but um, I'm, I'm hard pressed to say in the short term uh, how do you get out, uh, as Obama would say, to kind of break break the partisan fever? I, I think the challenge is learning learning to legislate in these very, very polarized times. Republicans, uh, through their national committee, actually commissioned a study of what they should do after Obama was reelected. And it took advantage of all of the demographers forecasts of the changing composition of the American electorate and the decline of whites and the rise of minorities and young people and educated people. And, and so urged, urged, this report urged them to actually try to build support instead of in some of these communities and divide the, uh, the group and their support and give you more room. But but then developments occurred and, and Donald Trump came along and he, he took the advice that, no, we don't have to do that. The hell with them. Uh, there are more white people out there who aren't voting Republican and let's go for them. And, and he did that. And as a result, we see more and more hardening around the country. It's not just red states and blue states. It's, it's, urban areas and rural, and it's certain kind of suburbs versus other kinds. People are living in like-minded places. And, and now everything is, is so hardwired. Uh, you know, we used to have a fair number of senators, Sarah, sometimes 22, uh, who, would, who would be elected from states that voted for a presidential candidate of the other party. Now there are almost none, you know, each, and the same is true in the Senate, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible. The, the, each party won 25 seats in the, in the presidential race. And, and uh, that party that won holds, uh, you know, holds 47 seats, each of them in the, in the Senate. I mean, it's, it's, it's so tied together that until the coalitional base of the party changes and it'll take something big. And I, I mean, like Sarah, I thought uh, no one wants one party government, but for a half dozen years, you could actually solve some problems and, and maybe have a Lincoln-like uh, a replacement of a Republican Party with uh, with one that's more suited for the future uh, composition of the country. But for the time being, Donald Trump and many Republicans believe they can win with their minorities. Right. Right. Um, look, that takes us exactly to the top of the hour. Um, we've got so many uh, great questions there. Um, we'll have to, I think, do this again, as they say, um, and, and, and work through 
some of those questions in particular, um, you know, just to foreshadow um, some of these questions about foreign policy, thinking, you know, putting our US study center hat on and, you know, is, is foreign policy and strategic competition with China, defense spending, might that sit in the, in the small bucket of things that do uh, ha have bipartisan support that Sarah was perhaps alluding to earlier? That will have to be a conversation for another day. Uh, uh, but the good news is these issues aren't going away anytime soon. Uh, and, and nor is the US Study Center. So we'll have an opportunity to, to visit again, I hope, with Tom and Sarah, either in person or perhaps more realistically online in, in due course for, for another go around at these questions. Um, thank you to both of you for joining us in the evening there in Washington, DC. Um, I so appreciate it. And, and it, truly the insight and the, the depth of insight uh, the two of you have a year long careers of, of studying US politics at a level of granularity and expertise that, that is so valuable to the US Study Center and our, our stakeholders and our audience today. So thank you. And Bruce, always thank you.